0: To the book of Ruth for a moment. And for those who are visiting with grace uh, what we do in the first Sunday, and since we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, we usually have two series. One one in the morning. And Pastor Thomas has been preaching uh, on the gospel according to Mark. And in the afternoon or evening worships, depending on the Sunday. Uh, we're studying the book of Ruth. But typically what we try to do is that in, uh, the first Sunday, and since we're partaking of the Lord's Supper in the, in this Sunday, uh, we try to make a bridge to, as a preparation for the Lord's Supper. And that's what we will try to do today also. Ruth chapter four. We're not going to read the text. We're just going to mention it, make one or two observations, and then uh, go to another text in the New Testament. But before we do it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Your people is glad and rejoices that we can come into Your presence. We are glad that You have joined us different people from different backgrounds even different nations and we come together because your son has united what was separated your son through his sacrifice was the one that tear down the wall that separated Jews and Gentiles and we come together as a united people with a single purpose, to worship you. And Father, after we have enjoyed a meal, our stomachs are full, we are satisfied. We want also to be satisfied spiritually. We want to be nourished also in our souls. And as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, the sign that your Son has instituted and gave it to us, that it might be a nourishment to us. Help us, Father, to understand its meaning, so that when we partake of it, it might be profitable to us. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we've been studying the book of Ruth, and last week we have started chapter 4. And at this point of the narrative, and even those who are visiting us, if you know this book and know the story, you know that at the beginning of chapter 4, the reader sits in expectation, because after Ruth has met with Boaz, now we want to know what Boaz is going to do and what's going to happen So who is going if someone going to redeem Naomi and Ruth? And we see that Boaz in chapter 4 goes to the city gate to meet this man because there was a man in line before him that had the duty of redeeming them and the land. But as we read the text, and last week we made this observation, we are struck by an unexpected detail is that we do not know the man's name. And it is striking because we have seen, we made the observation, that both in Scripture overall, but also in the book of Ruth, so many people are named. And some of them actually not as important for the development of the story or the narrative as this man, a nameless man. Apart from Naomi and Ruth, we know the names of Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, But this man, as important as he is, remains without a name. And we have seen the irony used by the narrator here. Because the first time that he is mentioned by name, or not by name, but directly, it's by Boaz. If you see in verse 1, how does he call him? He says, turn aside friend. Some of the translations even say, Mr. So-and-so. Because we don't actually, to be honest, and scholars do this sometimes, we don't actually exactly what it means. Those two words used together, because it's not common. It's very uncommon. And we see also that apart from this, the man is several times called or referred as the Redeemer. When in fact, and this is the irony, he is no Redeemer at all. He failed in his responsibility He is called Redeemer, but if it was for him, Naomi and Ruth would be doomed to a bleak faith. And we see more, because this so-called Redeemer, that is no Redeemer at all, gives the reason why he refused to fulfill his task. See verse 6 of chapter 4. Then the Redeemer, again he is referred as such, said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This man did not fulfill his responsibility because of his own selfishness. He himself said it. He did not become the redeemer because he had to pay the price of redemption. He did not serve because he had to make a sacrifice that he was not willing to make. The great irony, though, we said last week in note, that the man who cared most about himself, most about the preservation of his own name, is the man who lost his name forever. We know the name of everyone but of this man. While he was so concerned in protecting his inheritance, in keeping his name, his name is lost vanished, wiped out of the memory of the living. No one knows who this man was. We just know that for the sake of not, in his own words, impairing his own inheritance, he lost the greatest and more important inheritance. This so-called Redeemer, with the goal of making a name for himself, ended up receiving what he most feared, the loss of his name. He was wiped out of the memory of the living in the words of the Lord Jesus in order to gain his life, he lost it. So concerned with his own life that he didn't realize that he was losing it. And at the same time, we have seen that Boaz was exactly the opposite. He was willing to sacrifice what was his by right in order to give life to another. And in this way, we have learned that God inverts human logic. The man who was willing to use his life, his money, his effort, for the sake of another man's name. The man who was willing to see his name forgotten for the sake of perpetuating the name of another man, sees his name elevated to a point that he could never dreamed of. And even today, we are speaking about his name, Boaz. You see, God inverts human logic. And so today, I want us to remind the one who was like Boaz, but much better. As we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, I would like to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians, the letter that Paul wrote to that church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 13. So that we are reminded of the one who followed the same pattern of Boaz, but did it in a much more excellent way, to the point that his name is far more elevated than any other name. A man that was willing to make an ultimate sacrifice, not just to redeem a land or perpetuate a family name in this life, like Boaz, but someone who gave his life to save the world. Philippians 2, 5-13 Have this mind in you, says Paul to that church, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I want you to meditate on three simple things from this text. The what, the for what, and the so what, as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's start with the what. Verses 6 to 9 describe what theologians usually call the states of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. But first note this, very important. It starts in heaven. The Son was God. God Himself. He could not be in a higher position. That's where the story starts before anything else. He was God. And it is in this context of God Himself that then we read this, that He did not count His state As something to be grasped. There was an attitude and a willingness. That moved the son to do something. He did not grasp his position. The fact that he was God himself. With no needs. And because he did that. Or he was willing. He did two things. The first the text tells us. That he emptied himself. And you can ask, what does this mean? The text says, he took the form of a servant. And you ask, what does that mean? It means that he became a human being. He emptied himself by becoming a human being. Number two, it says, see verse 8, that when he was already a man, he humbled himself. If it was not enough... Is emptying, already in the form of man, he humbled himself. How did he do that? By being obedient in all things, says Paul, to the point of death. And then it adds a very important detail. Even death on a cross. And then verse 9 gives us the consequence or the end result. Therefore, because this happened, because he was willing, because he emptied himself, because he humbled himself, God exalted him above any other. A name above all names, meaning that he is more important than anyone else by any measure. So this is the first conclusion. That Christ's degree of humiliation is inversely proportional to the level of His exaltation. He went as low as He could be, but He was also exalted like no other. His humiliation could not be greater, just as His exaltation could not be more elevated And again, let's tie this with the book of Ruth. God's logic, which we saw with Boaz in the so-called Redeemer, is played in His Son in the most ironic way. The one who sacrifices the most is the one who deserves and receives the most. The one who gave Himself fully for others is the one who receives all from God. The one who forsook himself to give life is the one who receives the name above all names. Now note that his humiliation, again, can only be measured by taking into consideration who he was before he emptied and humbled himself. Because, you see, Boaz is like the Lord Jesus we already seen that he humbled himself to the will of God. Boaz gave of what was his. He paid the price. He made a sacrifice. However, Boaz was already a man, wasn't he? Everything he had had been given by God himself. Actually, not, nothing belonged to him by right. It was given to him. He gave only part of his possessions. His sacrifice was good, very good, but was still partial. But Christ's humiliation was of a much greater level because in the first place, our Lord Jesus Christ was God. He was no mere man like Boaz. We might be amazed with what Boaz did. We might be amazed by His grace. But what can we say about our Lord? He was God. All things were His in the first place. He created the universe. All belonged to Him. You see, His submission was not out of duty, as Boaz was bounded to obey because He was a creature. He was bounded to obey God and the lawgiver because He was a creature. He belonged to God in the first place. But now think about the Lord Jesus. It was the Son's own initiative to empty and humble Himself. He was the one who did not count His position as something to be grasped, as the text says. Out of His own will, He decided to lower Himself. He decided to become a creature, the one who was God from eternity. He knew no bounds. He had no needs. He was perfect, and he was perfectly satisfied with the Father and the Holy Spirit. No needs at all. And although he was God, and never forget without ceasing to be God, he became a man. As we learn in the series about the person of Christ, He emptied Himself by addition, not by subtraction. He became a man. He did not cease to be God. Without ceasing to be what He was, God, He became what He was not, human. And now in His human nature, He was now bounded in space and time. God. God. He became like us in all respects except sin. He was weak. He had needs. He suffered. He cried. And he died. Think about that. He died. He was in anguish. He obeyed the Father in all things, even to the point of death, even death on the cross the most humiliating and painful way to die, the despise, the mocking, the spitting, the beating, the tearing of his own flesh, the shame, the agony, and finally submitting himself to the power of death. Never forget that. The body of our Lord died and it was under the power of death for three days. That's how he humiliated himself willingly. You see, his humiliation was incomparable to any other because the distance between his initial status and the degree of humiliation was the greatest possible. From God to death on a cross. He who was God exalted on high has been humiliated to the point that he was submitted to the deepest pit. The one who was light was thrown into the deepest darkness. A darkness no man ever experienced. Brothers and sisters, what a shame to us, prideful people. We are so full of ourselves when we are but creatures. We look at our Lord's humiliation, our pride is immediately exposed. It is our pride that makes so difficult for us to recognize our sin and our faults. It is our pride that makes so difficult for us to submit to one another like spoiled little brats we always want our way so full of ourselves we behave as if we deserved what we are or what we have isn't it true but our lord is not like us is not like you and me he is perfect he was humble He emptied himself and humbled himself to the point of sacrificing his own life, not because he needed anything from us or because he owed us anything. He did it because he loved the Father and he did it because he loved us. He did it solely for our sake and for the glory of the Father. That's what motivated the Son. That's what motivated the Lord Jesus. But you see, the great thing is this, is that Christ's humiliation is not the end of the story. Not over yet. The Lord Jesus' degree of humiliation is inversely proportional to the level of His exaltation. His humiliation couldn't be greater, but His exaltation couldn't also be more elevated. As the text says that God exalted Him above any other. A name above all names. Now compare this to the so-called Redeemer in the book of Ruth. Who is He? He was so concerned with His inheritance. He was so concerned in protecting Himself. He was so concerned in building a name for Himself so that His memory, the memory of His name would last and we cannot even remember His name. Lost. Forgotten. In exactly the opposite. We have our Lord Jesus, who although was God, made Himself a man, sacrificed Himself, humiliated Himself, but He despised that shame because He was looking for the joy that was promised to Him. For our sake. For the sake of what He calls now His many brothers. Us, you see. He was declared to be the Son of God. He ascended to heavens. is he seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things. A name to whom every knee shall bow, willing or unwillingly, So we come to number two. For what? What was then the purpose of Christ's humiliation? See verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think about this. The purpose of Christ's humiliation was His exaltation. The purpose of His exaltation was the glory of God. Note, death was not the end. We can say that the Son was made man in order to die on the cross. But we we can't end up there. Christians don't speak about death in a morbid way. We do not speak about sacrifice as the end of the story. Christ's humiliation always had exaltation in mind. Christ's sacrifice was planned in eternity as a means of life and the glory of God. And in the same way, the sign of the Lord's Supper right before us, although it is a remembrance of death, It is given to us with the purpose of life because in Christ's death lies our own life and our own hope. Do you understand that? It's not a morbid way to come to the Lord's table. Of course, that we mourn, but it is a celebration because it is in this death that we have life. It is our hope. We live because He died. And because of that, as the psalmist said, we can still pray today, my flesh and my heart may fail. Do you struggle? Or do you have the perfect life I don't have? Do you cry? Do you feel frustrated? Do you struggle with your sin? Do you feel the weight of sin? Well, in Christ, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God in His Son is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We partake of our Lord's flesh and blood as if it were, represented in the bread and in the cup because it was Jesus' own sacrifice for us, His offering of His body, the shedding of His blood that gives us life. So it is truly our food. It is our nourishment. It is what keeps us alive. It is our hope. We live because He died. And because of that, we have hope. We partake of the Lord's Supper because when we look back to the cross, we are assured that our salvation is real and certain because it has nothing to do with what we do or what we will do. It was guaranteed there, so partake of the Lord's supper. Is part of Christian worship. Partaking of the Lord's supper is the partial fulfilling of Philippians two, ten to eleven that we just read. As we partake of the Lord's supper, we exalt Christ's name above all names, because as Peter preached, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, we worship God because our salvation was achieved on that cross when our sins were paid. We are free to worship. We don't need to worry. We don't need to wonder if we are going to be saved. We don't need to wonder if we are going to lose our salvation. Because if you are a child of God, if you have already repented and believe in Christ, you are and you will be saved. Do you see the certainty? That's why we go back to the day when our Lord died. Because on that day and because of that day, we look with certainty to the future even the midst of our circumstances today. And if it wasn't for that, woe to us. What hope would we have? So we come to the last point. So what? So what is in verse 5? Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters, God's logic remains the same. The way to exaltation is the way of humiliation. Again, not because we have this morbid desire for death. No. It is because we know that the way to exaltation is the way of humiliation. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus Jesus' pattern is still the only way to life. Do you remember when we studied in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus said, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, and the Gospels will save it. If I would ask you, of whom was Jesus speaking about? He was speaking first and foremost about Himself. Jesus said these words right after. He spoke about His own death. And people refused it. it. It is not the way. It could not be the way the disciples thought. And Jesus said, it is the way. And if you do not follow me in this way, you will not have life also. It continues to be the way. So let me go just to the beginning of chapter 2 of Philippians. Before God gives the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ, see what He said first. Verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is, and when Paul says if there is, he is not wondering, he's not in doubt. Have in mind that this letter had been already called many times the letter of joy. Why? Because Paul has many things to thank that church. So he recognizes that they are true believers. He is not questioning that. This conditional... Is As if Paul is saying, since you are, since I know this is true, because you are in Christ, because you are a new people, live as new people. So he says, if there is, one, any encouragement in Christ, we have already spoken about that. If there is any comfort from love, If there is any participation in the Spirit, if we are united in Christ and in the same Spirit, if there is, again, because I know that there is any affection and sympathy or compassion, since I know that you are moved by what moved our Lord Jesus, this is what Paul says complete my joy. I know that you are true believers. I know that you are united to Christ. I know that you are a body. Complete my joy, verse 2. How? Being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord in one mind. Paul is saying, Let the unity you have in Christ be made visible in the way that you relate to one another. And so many times the church misses this. Because we are so prideful. Because we're so selfish. Because we're so individualistic. We're always thinking about ourselves and what we think and what we want. And Paul is saying we're not like that anymore. Let the unity that is real that we have in Christ be made visible in the way that you relate to one another. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this mind in you. Have the same attitude. Have the same willingness. Seek to behave in the same way. Because you are His. Because you are new people. Because you don't seek the same things. You look for eternity. You look for exaltation. The same. We want to be glorified with Christ. We don't think that this life is the end. We know it is not. And now we skip to verses 12-13. to Remember, the way to exaltation is the way of humiliation. That's what it means in this context to work out our own salvation, is to have the same mind as Christ had. The Christian call is to self denial, it is to sacrifice. And this is the way to life, to glorification. The way of humility is the conformity to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be like Him. And finally, take courage in your struggles against your pride, against your selfishness. Seek humility knowing that it is God who is working in you. Just as you were not the beginning of your salvation, (laughs) you are not also the one who has power to become perfect, nor is it in your hands the end result of things or the consummation of your perfection. According to what Paul says, it is God who is working in you both the will and the doing. Which means that as we strive for salvation and as we seek for humility, we seek it, being encouraged that not only Christ was able to do it, but also that the Holy Spirit is the one working that in us. The one who started a good work in you is the one who will complete it. Guaranteed and assured. He will make sure that we are successful. So as we start a new stage of our of the life of our church as we move again to another place that our purpose might remain the same. To worship our God. To be conformed to the image of the Son. So that we might love God better for His glory. But remember also the promises of God. That He promises us that we will be glorified in Christ as in so far as we die with him. May God help us. Let us stay in prayer.